0: So far in this series, we have had three messages. They've all been from John, and what we're doing here is we're running under the title, Who Do I Say That I Am? Who does Jesus say that he is? What does he say about himself? And there are a series of sayings in John called the I Am sayings. We're looking at most of those, and we may pop in a few more things as the journey goes on. So it's real simple these days. It's just a focus on him. just like, let's set everything else to one side and let's fix our gaze on Jesus. In the Old Testament, God reveals himself by the name Yahweh, which means I am who I am. And then he adds more detail to it as time goes on. He says, Yahweh, shalom, I am your peace. Yahweh, jarrah, I am your provider and so on. Jesus does the same thing. He uses this phrase, I am. And he then adds to it, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. And that's where we've been this last few weeks, looking at how Jesus makes these declarations about himself against the feasts of Israel. If you're new in this morning or you just need reminded, we want you to see who Jesus is. Without the trappings of religion or without any other interference we want you to see who Jesus actually is. And this week, we're not at a feast. There might be a feast in the background. For those of you that like doing a bit of background reading, this, this probably happened in around the time of a feast called Purim. Uh, but John doesn't record that. But we're not at a feast, we're at a grave. All right? So the backdrop now is quite different. What, is, what does Jesus think of death? And how is he going to respond when he's faced with death in this chapter, John chapter 11? So I want to read some verses starting from, from verse one. If you have a Bible there, get to it, get it open and and follow along. John chapter eleven. I was about to read Luke eleven. that would have been a bit confusing. John 11 Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Let me just give you a little pointer what the word glory means, particularly in John's gospel. It means the character of God. So when, whenever Jesus says that God's son will be glorified through it, it means that people would see more of his character and who he is. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. It's a bit weird. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas called Didymus said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. some weird stuff in there that jesus does that we maybe don't quite expect let's see what we can learn from this passage god's timing is not our timing it seems really weird when you read verse five about how much jesus loved mary and martha and lazarus who was dead jesus loved this family he stayed at their house frequently whenever he was traveling it wasn't that far outside of jerusalem and he loves them, and he hears that Lazarus is sick, and it says when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two days. He didn't move. He didn't budge. He didn't get up and go to Lazarus to to help him, to heal him, to cure him. He didn't go to help comfort the family. He stayed where he was for two days. That sounds wrong, but it's designed to make you think, and we will come back to it a wee bit later. One of the things we need to learn about Jesus is he is not driven by our desires and by our time frame. He is driven only by the will of his father and his relationship with his father and what the father asks him to do. So what you've got in the first bit of the passage is the sisters, Mary and Martha, want Jesus to come to where they are and he doesn't go. He waits for two days. He won't be driven just by what they want him to do or what they think is best. And then when he does decide to go in verse 7, the disciples try to talk him out of it. In verse 8, they say, you can't go back there. Last time you were there, they tried to stone you because of all the stuff you said at the previous feasts. And they tell him, no, you you, you can't go. You're you're going to die. You're, You're walking into a death trap. And he doesn't listen to them either. So the sisters want him to go and he says, no. The disciples then want him to stay, and he says, no, I'm going, and he he heads in his own time. How often do we think that we know what God should do in any given situation, and he doesn't do it? I don't know if you've been there. I'm sure you have. I have. Where you look at things, you think, God, if you would just do this, this, and this, then everything would be fine. Why can you not see that, and why do you not do it? but God has got something more that he is working on. And Jesus has got something more important than the actual grief that these women are experiencing, more important than the fears that his disciples have for his life. God's ways are higher than our ways. And God frequently wants to do, in fact, always wants to do exceedingly abundantly more than what we ask or think. So we have this sort of level of, of God, I want you to do these things, whereas God has a level of, I want to do this. And in between, there's a gap, which is called faith, which is where he is calling us into, a place of faith. I want you to note that in verse 14, he says to the disciples, Lazarus is dead and I'm glad I wasn't there. Again, that sounds harsh and we sort of want to water it down a wee bit and say, oh, well, Jesus didn't really say that. Or we... No, he said it. He said, Lazarus is dead and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Now, why does he say that? He goes on in verse 15 to say, so that you may believe. Jesus is up to something here. These two days of waiting, he is up to something. And what he wants to do is he wants to develop faith and he wants people to see the character of God. That's really important. Look at verse 4. The sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. I have an agenda here. And the agenda is that you would know more about me, not just that I would do the thing that you want me to do. He's going to do it. He knows he's going to do it. And he says in verse 11 that he's going to do it. But he has a greater agenda. We we think the raising of Lazarus is the greatest thing imaginable. But Jesus has a greater agenda. And the agenda is, I want you to not only see your friend and your brother raised from the dead, I want you to see what I'm like. I want you to learn something about my character and the character of God. And not only does he want them to learn something about character, he wants their faith to grow. In verse 15, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe or so that you may have faith. He wants to develop faith. Do we realize sometimes the importance of our faith being built? How many times... Have you screamed at God? And many times have you been on your knees or even just in quiet thought and just sort of said, why don't you sort this out now? (laughs) Why don't you fix it now? It's so obvious that it's wrong. It's so obvious that that these are the things that need to happen. Why don't you sort it out now? Yet, whenever the trial has passed, I can tell you from experience, and I know lots of you have experienced it as well, when the trial has passed, we look back and we realize what God was doing. We realize that during those two days or four days, or six months, or a year, we realize that what God is actually doing in us is developing a level of faith that we would never have if life was all just a bed of roses. He is developing within us a level of prayer that we would never have when life is a bed of roses. It is in the most challenging times of our lives that our faith grows and starts to bridge the gap between what we want to see happen and what God wants to see happen. It is in those difficult times that faith grows. It is in those difficult times that you learn to pray in a way that you've never prayed before. It's in the easy times that prayer can fade and wane and get weak but it is in the difficult times that it grows. And even a a challenge to to you, how are you and how am I coping with this present trial, this trial of separation? How, How are we coping with that? Is faith growing and is prayer deepening? Will we come out of this wilderness into the promised land? So Jesus wants to develop faith and develop prayer. And he wants to show the character of God. I'm glad for the hard times in my life. I can tell you when I'm in them, I'm not glad for them. Okay, I I want them to end. But when they're over and I look back, I always, always acknowledge, God, thank you that you didn't do what I asked you to do when I asked you to do it. Thank you for what I've learned. Thank you for how faith has grown and character has grown and self has died that little bit more. In verse 17, when he, when he heads to Bethany, Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Now there was a Jewish superstition that's not found to my knowledge anywhere in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, but the Jews had a superstition that whenever somebody died, the spirit left the body but hovered around for three days hoping that the body would revive and the spirit would be able to gain access once again. So the fourth day was known as the day that hope died. The day that the spirit of the person gave up, saw that the body was beginning to decay and left. The fourth day was the day that hope died. Jesus arrives on the fourth day so that there can be no doubt that Lazarus is well and truly dead. And when he arrives, he's met by Martha. And she comes out with the wonderful words in verse 21 that so many of us say so many times, if only. (laughs) Jesus, if only you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And I don't know whether those words are spoken in faith or whether they are spoken in disappointment and frustration and anger. Jesus, if only you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. I thought you were good, Jesus. Why were you not here? Why did you not do what I said? If you'd done what I said, I sent you a message. I prayed. I sent you this letter inviting you to come, informing you that Lazarus was ill, and asking you to come. You didn't come. If you had come when I told you, this wouldn't have happened. If only you had actually been here, Jesus, what were you doing? What were you doing those two days back there in, in Bethany? Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Well, That's great, isn't it? Yeah, Jesus loves them, but he won't go and be with them what is going on? Where were you, Jesus? And let's be honest sometimes what's in our hearts. Where was Jesus in in a difficult past? Where was Jesus in the things that I've been through? Where was Jesus in the mess and brokenness of my life? Where were you, Jesus? If only you had been there, that would not have happened to me. I would not have gone through that or whatever. And Martha, I think, is focusing on the past. She's focusing on the death of Lazarus. She is focusing on the, the weeks maybe prior to this when he was sick with no medication, no pain relief, and she watched him deteriorate and die. And she's looking at that horrible mess of pain and emotions and upheaval and trauma and she's coming to Jesus. And I, I, I believe what she's saying is, if only you'd been here. Where were you? Where were you? What were you doing? And what Jesus does is he turns Martha's gaze from the past to the future. And he says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, there was another Jewish belief, and this one is rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures, and it is true. You'll find it in Daniel 12 too. You'll find it in Isaiah. The belief in a resurrection on the last day when God's people would rise from their graves. And that is not just a Jewish belief. That is a thoroughly Christian belief belief in a future bodily resurrection when graves will open and the people of God will rise. I believe that. I believe that the Bible teaches a resurrection on the last day. A new heaven and a new earth, creation restored, God dwelling among his people, the dead raised. I believe that. And that's what Martha believed as well. She believed in a last day resurrection, awakening from death back to life for the people of God. And Jesus reminds her of that. And then she said, she says to him, "I know He will rise again in the resurrection at the last day, but I feel there's a there's a sense when she says that that she's doing that thing that you and I probably do as well, where you just you say the right theological christiany statement at the right time but you don't maybe really cling to it that much you're just like resigning yourself to yeah, well, yeah i know this will happen and but it's not really bringing you that much comfort the hope of the future resurrection of the people of god does bring us a degree of comfort it is a biblical truth and it is something that is a reality and that we do find hope in but jesus then does something amazing Martha's been looking to the past. He has turned her gaze to the future resurrection and she has acknowledged that. And then what he does in verse 25 is he grabs the future and he pulls it back into the present. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And that Is his statement, his I am statement in this particular story. She has been dwelling on the past, grieved why he wasn't there, apparently wasn't there. He has turned her gaze to the future hope of the resurrection of the dead. It has provided a degree of comfort. And then he has just pulled it all together right in front of her and he says, Right now, in the present, at this instant, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is no longer simply a future hope. It is a present reality. The resurrection is not a doctrine or a belief statement. The resurrection is a person. Everything, everything is found in Jesus. He does not give the bread, He is the bread. He does not shine the light. He is the light. He does not inform people how to be good shepherds. He is the good shepherd. And he is not just simply talking about a future resurrection to remind her of it and try to lift her spirits a little bit. He declares, I am that resurrection. It is found in me. You see, doctrine does not comfort people. Whenever, whenever she is in her grief, Jesus does something that no other person can do. He turns her gaze onto him, onto himself. Martha, in your grief, look at me. Anyone else says that, it's arrogant, it's audacious. No other person has the right to say that. But Jesus says to her, Martha, in your grief, in your despair, in your heartbreak, look at me. Doctrine does not comfort people when their lives are falling apart. They don't need doctrine. They don't need theology. They need Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life, and he comforts her loss by directing her attention onto himself. He goes on to say, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. That's the resurrection. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. I believe that if I die before Jesus returns and this body goes into the ground, there will come a day when it will rise again. Okay? And if you think you're listening to a nut job, then just go ahead and join a different stream somewhere else. I believe that. That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus, Paul, everybody. That's what the Bible teaches. But I also believe that already that life of God is within me. This physical body will stop living someday. But there is a life within me that Jesus has given me that will never stop. Not even for a nanosecond at the moment of death, that life will not cease. I am an eternal spiritual being. And that life that God has given to me will not be taken from me by anything. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe it? We'll come back to that question a wee bit later. And then we have the showdown with death. A few of you will have heard me speak on this before, and I'll not go into it in massive detail, but this is a, a scene that just stirs me like few other scenes in the scriptures. It gets the blood going like I absolutely love this. I can picture it, I can see it. the the showdown between Jesus and death. Let me read <clears throat> a few more verses from 28. When Jesus reached the place, or when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you led him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone led across the entrance. Deeply moved. When Jesus hears Mary weeping and sees the people that are with her weeping, we read that he was deeply moved. Now, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. We're very polite with our English translations. We're very, you know, we're very proper about Jesus and how he behaves. And, he was, and we have this picture, we read this, we have this picture of Jesus just like, oh, you know, that's awful. That is just not anywhere near where this language is. The Greek word is a word to describe rage, absolute fury. And if you have not, if if your picture of Jesus does not allow for rage and fury, I would encourage you, you need to read the Gospels more. Jesus is absolutely raging. He is furious in this scene, maybe more than we see him at any other point, maybe more than when he cleanses the temple, maybe more than when he heals the guy in Mark one in the, in the synagogue, and the religious guys have a shot at him. He is angry there as well. But in this portion, he is deeply moved. He is outraged at what's going on. There's a, other language versions of the Bible actually get this better. Apparently, there's a French version, and when you translate that over into English, what the French version says is that he was bitterly indignant outraged and irritated he's really ticked off the word that's used in greek is the same word you use to describe a horse when it rears its front hooves up off the ground and raises its head and snorts when it's angry and when it's agitated about something that's the language that's being used about jesus he's clean mad you get it he's absolutely furious and he says where have you led him which is the same thing that Mary Magdalene will say on resurrection morning when she can't find the body of Jesus. She says, where have you led him? Jesus says it here, where have you led him? And the people say to him, come and see, which is the same thing Jesus said in John chapter 1 to some followers who came and asked him where he was staying. He says, come and see. I think it's lovely that just as an aside, there is this thing that has grieved them and has caused them tremendous pain, the death of Lazarus. And there's a tomb, and they bring Jesus to that which has grieved them. There's a lesson there for us. Bring Jesus to the source and the point of your pain and your anguish and your grief in life. He will not just stand at a distance and, and you know, say polite things. Bring him to it. Bring Jesus into it and you will find that when he gets there he will weep with you over the pain and over the grief that you have suffered one of the greatest lies that the devil has spread and propagated through the world is the notion that god is this emotionless being away out there beyond the blue a million miles away from the real world who who is not moved by what we go through Jesus weeps with those who weep. No one hates death more than him. Bring Jesus to the thing that is grieving you and allow him to come into it and weep with you. Whenever John says in chapter one that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, here he is among us, weeping with us, weeping with us. In, the, in Revelation 1 that we looked at way back at the start of this, this COVID-19 journey, we saw that Jesus walks among the candlestands. He's with the church. Do not fall for the lie that he's a million miles away. He is with us. The actual Jewish belief about heaven was that it was right right beside us, all around us, not above the clouds, but all around us. And therefore, if we just had eyes to see it, we would see the glory of God around us, but we don't. He's not a million miles away. He is among us intensely and he weeps. The one who will go to the cross, the one who will wipe away every tear from every eye in Revelation, weeps. Why did he weep? Why is he so outraged and angry? There are those who think that he was weeping for Lazarus That's probably part of it. But he said in verse 11 that he's going to wake Lazarus up. So I don't think he's just weeping for Lazarus for his dead friend. I think he's weeping when he sees Mary weep. And when he sees the other people there weeping. And when he sees the pain that death has brought to the human race, he weeps. He did not create death. And for, for Jesus at that tomb, I, I picture Jesus and the tomb of Lazarus, and it's like a showdown. On the one hand, in the blue corner, you've got death. You've got the, the temple of death, effectively, the tomb, the prison of death. And in that tomb, there is a human being made in the image of God, lying cold and dead. And then in the red corner, we've got Jesus. And the two are facing off. Can you just allow your imagination and allow your feelings to to try to even touch for a moment the way Jesus felt, the very author of life, the one whose word was spoke and created the world, and created humanity in the image of God, and breathed life into that, he now stands face to face with his enemy, and he sees that man in the image of God, cold, lifeless, dead, inside the prison of death. Can you even begin to understand the rage that Jesus felt? Can you get it? The rage... The rage that he feels. He's not angry with Mary because Mary's crying. He's not angry because people are upset at a funeral and, and he thinks, oh, they should know better. They should know about the resurrection then they shouldn't be so upset. That's garbage. He, he sees their grief and he weeps at the pain that has been brought into the human heart because of death and sin. He weeps when he sees what his creation that he loves is going through. Have you ever wept those hot tears of anger? He's furious with death. He looks at that grave, he looks at the tomb, he looks at the stone. He knows that his image is in there, dead. And he's raging. Tears are streaming down his face. He is utterly furious with death. How dare you? How dare you invade my creation? How dare you take captive man made in my image? What view should Christians have of death? We sometimes hear lots of soft, gentle things said about death. I believe a Christian view of death should, should be the same as Jesus' view of death. We should hate it. We should utterly, utterly despise it. Even after the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, his pouring out of the Spirit and the onward movement of the church, Paul still refers to death as the enemy, the enemy of man. And we should hate it. We should be outraged by its very presence. I don't know if you've ever stood at a grave and amidst all the different emotions that you feel of hurt and loss and... And feeling sympathy for for the others around that grave who are maybe closer or were closer to the person than you are or were, and you've all these different emotions going on. Have you ever felt rage? Have you ever just looked at that hole in the ground? Have you ever looked and just felt rage? How dare you? How dare you? He is the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. And he hates death. No one on this planet grieves these increasing numbers of deaths that we hear about on the news each day. No one grieves that the way Jesus grieves it. No one. No one is outraged by it the way Jesus is outraged by it. And he stands and he stares at death, full of rage, full of anger, weeping on behalf of his people. Verse 39, take away the stone. This is another one of those things that in this passage just seems weird. He stays for two days. Why did he stay for two days? He was glad that he wasn't there when Lazarus died. Why was he glad that he wasn't there? Take away the stone. Why do you take away a stone from a grave? Four days he's been in there. Take away the stone. Martha says, but Lord, there's a bad smell. (laughs) He has been there four days. Four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? We're back to faith. He said to her in verse 26, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, do you believe this? Do you have faith in this? Take away the stone, Martha. Take away the stone. But Lord, take away the stone, Martha. But he stinks. Take away the stone. Do you believe? Did I not tell you that if you had faith, you would see the glory of God? You're going to see a revelation of the character of God. Do you have faith, Martha? Do you believe it? Take away the stone. And you think, what does taking away a stone have to do with faith and believing? I want you to get something. Linda and I sat and chatted about this last night in a different context. Believing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life now affects how you live now believing that he is the resurrection and the life right now because what Jesus did with Martha was he pulled the future back into the present he said Martha Lazarus is going to rise again and yeah that's great I take comfort in that and then he just pulls it on he says I'm the resurrection Martha and that's going to affect how you live now Martha now Because I'm the resurrection now, and I am the life now, and I'm going to affect how you live now. Do you believe? Do you have faith? Will you take away the stone? You see, folks, if all we believe is that Jesus died for our sins and we're going to heaven when we die, we'll do nothing in between. And that, I'm afraid, is the state of a lot of the church in Northern Ireland. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven when I die in between, I'm just going to live the same way everybody else is. I'm going to acquire as much stuff as I can. I'm going to get as much comfort as I can. I'm going to have as good a time as I can. I'm going to try to be a good fella and not do anybody any harm or annoy God. And then I'm going to die and go to heaven. And if all of you have, if if, if all you've got is a future hope, A future hope that my sins are forgiven and I'm going to heaven and that is entirely true and entirely biblical. My sins are forgiven and if I pass away, today I'm going to heaven. Today you shall be with me in paradise. I'll be in the presence of my king. But if that's all we've got, sometimes we can then live a life in between that counts for nothing. Whereas if the future has broken into the present and Jesus tells us, You've got that life in you now, that eternal life. The resurrection has already begun. It has begun in Jesus, who has been physically resurrected from the dead. The tomb is empty. It has begun in him, and he offers it to us. And although our bodies are not yet raised until the last day, the life of God, the resurrection life that can never be taken from us, is already here, and it should affect how we live. Do you understand? It should affect how we live. That I'm not just breathing a sigh of relief that my sins are forgiven and therefore I'm okay, but that instead I am wanting to bring that river of life into this dry world. Whether it's the classroom or the office or the street or the surgery or wherever it may be, the ward, whether it's for you NHS workers out there, it's bringing the life and the flood of the river of life into the dry places of this world. You're so tired and you're so exhausted and you're under so much pressure But you that know him have such a privilege. You can bring the resurrection and the life into that dry place. Believing that he is the resurrection affects how we live now. And then there's the stench. And I better finish off soon. Don't want to roll the stone away, Jesus, because it stinks in there. And sometimes I think Jesus wants us to roll away a stone in our hearts, that our hearts have become a place that's stinking, where things have decayed and decomposed in there that are ugly. And Jesus comes and says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And we say, yay, hooray, I'm going to heaven when I die. And he says, no, I'm the resurrection and the life. Now, take away the stone. No, 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 Jesus. There's stuff in there that we don't want to we don't want to look at. We don't want to go take away the stone. Because there's going to be a resurrection. And as I prayed over this and thought about it last night and this morning, I felt just this phrase, I cannot raise the dead if you will not open the tomb. I can't raise the dead. If you won't roll the stone away, I cannot raise. I cannot deal with the death that is within you, the stench that is within your heart that you don't want to come out. I can't, there cannot be a resurrection unless you roll the stone away. You have to allow him to come in and deal with your heart. It's a partnership. Nearly there. Verse 41. Jesus, they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now, hang on. He hasn't prayed yet. What's going on here in verse forty-one? Look at that. I thank you that you've heard me. Heard what? <laughs> you know, it's not as if he, he prayed, and then at the end of his prayer he said, "Father, I thank you that you've heard me." He hasn't prayed yet, or has he? Has he? What was he doing those two days, back in verse six? Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. What were you doing, Jesus? If only you'd been here. Where were you? In my time of pain, in my grief, in my loss, in the mess of my past. Jesus, where were you? I was praying for you. What were you doing for those two days, Jesus? I was praying for you. I was on my face before my father, praying for you. If only you'd been here, Jesus. I was praying for you. Why were you not there when I was grieving? My br- I was praying for you, because obviously in verse forty-one there are some prayers that have already been prayed that Jesus is referring back to. You've heard me. When did he pray? He prayed in verse 6. He prayed for two days. And if I could put his, his prayers in some sort of priority, I would say down here is raising Lazarus from the dead. And up here is that you would believe, that you would have faith, and that you would see the glory of God, the character of God. He didn't just go and click his fingers and raise Lazarus. He wanted to achieve something in the heart of Martha and Mary, and his disciples, and he prayed for two days for all of them. And I would challenge you, if you have a a view of Jesus that looks to your past and says, Jesus, where were you when that happened to me? I'll put you to verse 6 and verse 41, and I would suggest he's praying for you. For we read about how he ever lives, I think it's in Hebrews, he ever lives to make intercession for us. He prays for his people. And then he stands, and I can see it as clear as it was there, with those hot tears running down his cheeks, furious in front of the gaping jaws of the great enemy of those who were made in his image. He stands, and he looks it in the eye, And he stares at death. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And I don't know what it looked like, because he was still wrapped up in linen. (laughs) So I don't know how he got out of there, whether he was hopping or what he was doing. But out he came. He says, take off the grave clothes. Take off every single thing that smells of death. Take off every last trace of the grave. I am the resurrection and the life. Death will not hold you. Death will not have the final word. Lazarus, come out. Powerful. And then the thief comes. If you were in last week, you remember the thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy? We always hang that on the devil. But the devil sometimes dresses up and the thief is religion. And look what the thief does in verse 53. Once the Pharisees have heard of it, in verse 53, it says, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And in chapter 12, when you go into it, and I think verse 10, they wanted to kill Lazarus. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus, the resurrection and the life raises Lazarus from the dead and along comes the thief of religion and wants to kill them both. Beware religion. It is a thief. Jesus came to give life. Mark Buchanan in his book, Your Church is Too Safe, writes a chapter about three spirits that always show up whenever Jesus is about And they're not the ghost of Christmas, past, present, and future, the three spirits. He says the three spirits that show up are the Holy Spirit, unclean spirits, demons, and the spirit of religion. And you track through John every time Jesus does the stuff. Religion shows up immediately afterwards and wants to kill and wants to destroy. That's what the thief came to do. Sin has created many graves in people's lives. Depression, addiction, alcoholism, drug abuse, fear, lust. Lots and lots of graves that people are in. Places that stink. And Jesus, I believe, stands outside every one of those graves, weeping with the power and the desire to call people out. With the offer of resurrection life. I'm the resurrection, I'm the life. You take the stone away and let's get busy. And when people face death, they don't need answers. I've yet to read of someone lying on their deathbed asking the question, where did the dinosaurs come from and where did they go? (laughs) Or who was Cain's wife? Or how old is the earth? Whenever someone is facing death, there's only one thing they want, and it's life. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And I will give you that life. No. And it will change how you live. No.